0: Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 37 of KindredCast. On today's show, we feature a conversation with Liontree CEO Aryeh Borkhoff and Strauss Selnick, the founder and partner of investment firm ZMC, and the CEO and chairman of gaming company Take-Two Interactive. In addition to overseeing both companies... Strauss recently authored a new book called Becoming Ageless, The Four Secrets to Looking and Feeling Younger Than Ever, which comes out this fall. He also discusses the resurrection of Take-Two with its blockbuster hits, including Grand Theft Auto and NBA 2K, the opportunities presented by esports, and the importance of mentorship. I hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, everyone. It is my great pleasure today to be sitting down with Strauss Zelnick, the CEO and chairman of the board of Gaming Juggernaut Take-Two Interactive, and the founder of ZMC, a media investment and management firm which was formed in 2001 by Strauss. I've known Strauss for almost 17 years. He's considered one of the foremost CEOs in the media industry, and some of you also know he's a major advocate for health and wellness. Beyond that, he's a mentor to many entrepreneurs in the industry, including myself. His new book, Becoming Ageless The Four Secrets to Looking and Feeling Younger Than Ever, will be out later this year. It feels full circle, Strauss, to have you here and to be hosting you in our offices at Liontree because you graciously housed us before Liontree even existed after uh, I left UBS along with Aaron. And uh, I'll never forget when you insisted on the fact that we would be um, your cohabitants. And so it is great to have you here today in so many levels. And I should also mention that ZMC and Liontree co host. A what's become a very popular and impactful women in media dinner series, and I'm so grateful for your support and obviously our ability to showcase the fabulous entrepreneurs that are women of our time, and they've inspired many. So thank you for being here. I'm eager to dive in, but I really appreciate you coming to our offices. Thanks. It's great to be here, and, and uh, boy are these nice offices. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember back in the day in uh, your old offices. Yeah, uh, you were we, lucky to get heat. <laughs> I was lucky to get heat. <laughs> Exactly. We were homeless. So tell me, before we get into um, the different components of your life, how do you split your time between your gaming hat, your investing hat, and your fitness hat? Because those are all three passions of yours right now.
2: You know, I'm fortunate that I love what I do. And if you love what you do, it doesn't really feel like work. Uh, I'm also fortunate that we live in an age when electronic devices allow us to be anywhere and still show up and uh, connect with people be responsive and make decisions. I remember when I started in business, you know, if you had to work on a weekend, you had to sit at your desk to work on a weekend. And otherwise you simply couldn't be effective. If you love what you do and you take pains to be connected, you really can sit anywhere. The other piece is um, I don't think you can have 20 priorities. You know, Kevin Ryan is a good friend. He thinks you can have three priorities in your life. I think you can stretch it to four, but you can't have an unlimited number of priorities and have an interesting and uh, rewarding life. My four are my family and my friends, my work, mentoring and charitable work and fitness. And I treat my life that way. And that means that I can't Do everything I'd like to do. I love reading, and I only really read when I'm on planes. Luckily, I'm on planes a lot. I love movies. I don't see enough movies. I love museums. I don't go to museums enough. Because I recognize the notion of having it all is a fantasy. But being able to fulfill three or four key priorities is a potential reality if you display some
1: discipline. Where does writing fit into the priorities then?
2: I guess that fell into an intersection of mentoring and fitness because the upcoming book, and it's my second book, is on the, the notion that defining yourself through the limitation of age is a mistake and unnecessary. And while it takes the expression of health and wellness primarily, but really not entirely. So the funny thing about the notion of becoming ageless is I, you could interpret it narrowly to be like, you know, how do you live forever? Well, none of us is living forever. I and mean, the truth is by the way, that fitness doesn't necessarily even increase your lifespan. It almost certainly increases your health span uh, and your quality of life but there's very little evidence it meaningfully increases your lifespan which is driven by other Few, things <laughs> music to my ears <laughs> i'm not have to be guilty about it <laughs> um, so the the book is really not about a fantasy of living forever the book is about using age as a limitation is unnecessary and a mistake and one of the examples i like to give is you know the notion of you're too young for things never mind you're too old for things so you know, I was always told you're too young to do. I was, you know, sort of known as a precocious kid. So I was always too young to do things. I was told over and over again that I was too young to pursue my career ambitions. And that turns out not to be the truth. So up until the age of about 35, I was considered very young for what I did. And then after the age of 35, I I seemed to be considered old for what I did. (laughs) I I somehow never had a moment in between, which seems terribly unfair. Um, But but, what was was mm, the impetus for the mm. timing of the book? Do you feel like you're aging? No, to the contrary. I became much more athletic as I aged. And I got to a point where I realized that Every year I could get fitter. And I now train with athletes who are half my age or younger, some of whom are former professional athletes, all of whom are former varsity athletes, uh, some of them are current professional athletes. And I train right there within the crew, you know, sometimes i certainly not at the, the very top of the class, but I'm also not at the very bottom of the class. I'm probably right there in the middle of the class. And um, that's evidence that this just isn't about age. And by the way, I'm not naturally talented either. I just am passionate and I work hard.
1: Do you think that the fitness and the wellness that you engage in at your still young age helps with your business decisions? Is there a relationship there?
2: I think living your best life helps all of your decisions. And I do think if you're going to get up at five in the morning to get to the gym at six, you probably can't stay up late and misbehave So that probably means you're gonna be a bit more clear headed. I think it's probably an overstatement to say that being fit necessarily wouldn't, there are plenty of people who aren't into fitness who make excellent decisions.
1: Yeah, don't look at me that way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're into fitness. You're much more into fitness than you used to be. That's true. That's true. Partially because of your mentorship. Last time I was here, you had cleared out all the unhealthy snacks.
1: We've gone beyond that now. We'd sustain that, thankfully, I think, unless people are hiding their snacks. There's a little hiding going on in my office. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We do try to also do these, what we call roar at four, where we do push-ups every day, 40 push-ups at four o'clock as a firm no matter which office we're in. And then whoever's leading the effort that week gets to choose a second exercise on top of that. It's better than a coffee clutch at four o'clock. So everyone gets together and does a little exercise. That's great. Does it have a team building effect as well? Yes, of course. Any people find it annoying? We've made it optional, right. but encouraged for a lot of reasons. I think people generally like it. The feedback has been positive. We have to just keep it going. Yeah. I
2: mean, our view is that creating the culture where there is no demerit for leaving the office to go to the gym is great creating a culture where there's an expectation is unkind. And I think you can lead positively by example, but I would never want someone to feel bad if that's not their thing.
1: Yeah. We actually modified our benefits program just last week to help compensate people, reimburse people for gym memberships. We do that at many of our
2: portfolio companies. However, you have to submit the number of times you go so that we're not paying for a membership that's not being used. And also to encourage people to use them by saying, hey, you know, you got to just let us know when you go, when there's a check-in. And if you don't check in, that month you don't get a reimbursement. It'll cut you off, but that month you don't get a reimbursement.
1: Smart. Maybe we'll have to modify our program Just again. to <laughs> let people know that you're
2: on, on top of it and yeah. that they're, you encourage people.
1: Yeah. Tell me about the fitness club, group fitness club that you started a few years back called The Program. The Program happened just
2: organically. I was um, cycling in the park a couple of days a week with friends and uh, the weather turned cool. And one of my friends said, hey, let's go to a spin class. And I, my attitude was, I don't like spinning. That sounds terrible. And he said, no, there's this new one called Flywheel. You should check it out. And we went and really enjoyed it because there's a leaderboard and it measures what you're doing. So I think it was one friend and the next week he brought another friend. And then the week after that, that person brought a friend. And before you knew it, there were five or six of us showing up twice a week during the winter spinning. And then we said, hey, maybe we should try something else just to, you know, diversify what we're up to. And I said, I've heard of this thing called hot power yoga. I didn't know anything about yoga. So we decided to try hot power yoga. First time I went, I took my wife. And uh, we've slightly different views on fitness, obviously, you know, Wendy. And so we're there together and we do this hot power yoga session. At the end of the session, we're drenched and it was really hard because neither one of us knows yoga. And simultaneously, we look at each other and I say, that was a religious experience. And she says, simultaneously, I'm never doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) So having enjoyed it, I brought my morning friends with me. It was funny. It was amusing because we were at a yoga class with all these incredibly fit women who know something about yoga and us. And we sort of clomped in and fell and stumbled and laughed. And the 6 a.m. hot yoga class is not exactly oversubscribed. And so the instructor liked us because we showed up and actually populated the class. And next thing you know, people started coming to the class because it was amusing, I think, actually. And a whole bunch of fit guys were there with their shirts off too, actually. (laughs) I think that's something to do with it. Next thing you know, it was like their most popular class. Uh, That was the second day. And then we said, there's a fitness class at Equinox called Body Blast. You want to check it out? And we went there with a trainer named Flex Cabral. Then that became another day. And Flex has started his own gym called Trooper Fitness, where we train every week on Thursdays. And then finally, we added one more day of high-intensity interval training, and it turned into a a four-day-a-week program. Now there are about 60 or 70 people on the email list as a sign-up sheet, and roughly 15 to 25 people show up every
1: morning. And there's a good intersection between the group that you work out together with or you cycle with and your mentors or mentees, right?
2: Yeah, there's some intersection there, but not during exercise. (laughs) (laughs) If people want to talk to me, they got to do it afterwards or before.
1: All right, good. If we could switch gears a little bit to the business side of your life. In 2007, now it seems like a long time ago, when you took over as chair of Take-Two, the company was a bit in dire straits. It was losing approximately $200 million a year. And the former CEO pleaded guilty to falsifying records. Regulators were swirling around with demands and the stock was battered. It always had Grand Theft Auto as a franchise for games. It was pretty much in deep water at that time. So when you came in, did you have a grand plan for turning it around? Or what was the vision in 2007? And and how would you give yourself a progress report on it?
2: The company was doing about $700 million in net revenue. was losing money. As you said, it had $50 million in cash. It was under investigation by the New York DA's office, the SEC, and the IRS. So it had had won the trifecta of government investigations. had 1,100 people. It had one hit property, Grand Theft Auto. Its sports business was losing $30 million a year and was about to be bankrupt. Our group took over. The company, just before we filed our uh, 13D, the stock was trading $11 a share. Maybe the plan wasn't grand, it was straightforward. It was to reduce the overhead, become a compliant organization, create a culture of enormous creativity, excellence, innovation, uh, and efficiency in everything that we did. Diversify the product line. Write the sports business, get rid of unprofitable titles, fix the balance sheet, open offices in Asia and build a China business, diversify into other lines of interactive entertainment business. And that's what we set out to do. It took a few years. It was incredibly hard, incredibly hard. And today, um, we just finished a year with uh, $2 billion in net bookings, $400 million in cash flow provided by operations. We have no debt. We have 1.4 billion dollars in the balance sheet. We bought back 300 million dollars of stock in the last six months. We have 4,200 employees all over the world, a very large presence in Asia, a very significant free-to- play presence, um, 11 franchises that have sold over five million units, 55 franchises um, that have sold over two million units, an exceedingly profitable sports business led by NBA 2K, an enormously successful basketball brand and a number of really exciting projects on the horizon, including the upcoming release of Red Dead Redemption 2 on October 26th. So And fully um,
1: compliant on top of that.
2: We're a highly compliant organization. We're also a, a kind organization. And today, the stock's at $114 a share. It's an incredible turnaround. It's been really rewarding. I just did a town hall meeting there today. It's a great place to work.
1: Yeah, new offices, which are beautiful yeah, and sleek. Can finally afford new offices. We, too, now have heat. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Grand Theft Auto was always there. You said you have diversified the title group as well. But let's talk about Grand Theft Auto for a second, because Grand Theft Auto 5 sales reached 90 million units recently. Now 95. 95 right? million units, becoming the highest-grossing media title of all time, beating franchises like Star Wars, Avatar, and others. And it continues to be a cult favorite as well, which is nice to have. How do you think about how that kind of reach for the title? And you usually don't see franchises on their fifth version continuing to reach that kind of audience and beating uh, you know, multimedia platforms of all kinds. Yeah, it comes
2: down to creativity. You know, the folks at Rockstar Games have done an extraordinary job in building a world, this massive world, in which you can engage for really endless hours with other people where you can pursue stories uh, and define yourself and actually live in that world in a way that feels really real and really fun. Really, really fun. I think one of the keys to great interactive entertainment is easy to approach, difficult to master. And I think Rockstar embodies that formula in its titles. So if you're a hardcore gamer, you can love it. And if you're relatively new to interactive entertainment, you can love it. And that has expanded the universe so that there isn't a hardcore gamer over the age of 17 who doesn't have Grand Theft Auto Five. basically. It doesn't exist. But the universe of people who have engaged with that entertainment property is much greater, much, much greater. And I think that's what we endeavor to do at all of our companies, which is, you know, we're not a video game company. We're not an interactive entertainment company. We're an entertainment company. And our teams have proven that our titles can be the most important entertainment properties on earth. And yet, it's just the beginning for this industry, and therefore, I think, for us.
1: Yet, you know, when you are making IP and the creative engine starts to move, you have major gaps between the releases of, let's say, you know, Grand Theft Auto, for example. But you're not out to make new content every year. You're really trying to build long-term franchises. That's obviously the panacea for every entertainment company is to have a a long-term franchise, more predictability of the cash flows, a built-in audience that grows. So what is it about the creative engine that Take-Two that kind of gets the long-term franchise value away from GTA?
2: Well, what's really changed about our businesses, you know, it used to be you, you made a video game in the way that you made a temple movie. And you spend a lot of time and money building it, marketing it, and then you hope for the best in your results. And then you collect your money and move on. We pioneered in Grand Theft Auto IV the notion of creating digital add-on content. And then with Grand Theft Auto V, an online multiplayer world that you access if you buy Grand Theft Auto V if you wish to. And most people do wish to. And for all of our titles, we've said we offer consumers an opportunity to engage on an ongoing basis, whether that's NBA or Borderlands or Bioshock or other titles. So the effect of that is a business that used to engage with you and then say, see you in a few years, or in this case for a sports title, see you next year, now offers you an opportunity to stay engaged for as long as you want. So Grand Theft Auto Online was launched over four years ago and just had its record year, another record year. Uh-huh. So we now have the ability to build a brand, keep a consumer engaged for a long period of time. And um, at and then re-engage with another iteration of the franchise at some point in the future if we choose to. Yeah, with um, a
1: diversified set of titles. And
2: with a diversified set of titles, every year can look different so we don't burn out a title by annualizing it. And it's even easier to do that because a release uh, that's two or three years old may still have a very big audience right now. Basketball, for example, used to be a three-month business. It's now a 12-month business.
1: Yeah. You know, when we were recently on a panel together. You were asked about esports And I think the person that asked the question was struggling to understand what all the craze is about. And you described it really well to, generationally, for all of us, I think, for both of us and people on the phone, how we should digest the fact that people are actually paying to watch other people in masses play video games.
2: Right, well, um, the analogy I used was, I imagine there was some point in time when you played basketball, and you'd have to ask yourself, why would I pay to watch someone else play basketball? Because that's the same question you would say. Why would I pay to watch someone play a video game? And the answer is, you pay to watch someone play basketball because you love the game, and you can't play at the level played by the person you're watching. Yeah, and, I can't
1: dunk, so I'm going to watch someone else and so pay for them dunking much better than you, I could ever do. You love the
2: sports, so you really love the notion of seeing the world's best players exactly. engage in that sport in a competitive way. We're now in uh, the fourth week of our first season of the NBA 2K League. I was there at actually an event. We had a draft, 102 of the best players on earth, chosen from 72,000 people who applied for 17 teams. These are the best players on earth. And it's an incredible thing if you're into video games to watch. And now what we need to do more of is bring those stars to life. The celebrity of it. Yeah, because when you watch you know, the NBA on television, you're watching a basketball game, but you're watching a story. You're watching a storyline about the people you admire. The characters. And... Yeah, absolutely. You're watching their expertise, their behavior, their bad behavior, their wins, their losses, their injuries, their disappointments. And you make those people your own. That's why we wear jerseys with other people's names on them. And so we need to bring that very same thing to esports. And and that's why I'm excited, because we have the talent now playing out in Queens nightly. And they're phenomenally exciting to watch. We need to bring that excitement to consumers. I believe we will. So right now, many, many people watch the first season on Twitch. We got sponsors like Dell.
1: It's incredibly exciting. I mean, how material or how important to the strategy for Take-Two is esports. And you think you'll have more partnerships and other deals to talk about in the coming future?
2: We've worked together for so long. It's sort of unusual for an entertainment executive in in addition to being relatively soft-spoken, grammatical, and unwilling to engage in hyperbole. I'm also really conservative. Uh, and I believe that the recipe for success in entertainment, which is tough business and a risky business, is the intersection of enormous creative risk with extraordinary financial discipline. And that's what we try to do at Take Two. We push our folks to take extraordinary risks creatively, or push the envelope, try new things, but we do so with a financial structure that's you know solid as a rock, recognizing that things go against you. Uh, what we really love is an asymmetric risk where. If things don't go our way, the financial consequences are de minimis. And if things go well, the financial consequences are extraordinary. And that's what we've done here with our our joint venture with the NBA. The costs of pursuing this are not significant to us as an organization, nor to the NBA. The opportunity is massive. What we've told uh, investors is, look, there's nothing in our guidance. so. You shouldn't underwrite to this. We don't underwrite to this. We think there's a great opportunity. We hope there's a great opportunity. But if somehow we're unable to realize it, rest assured, your company is not compromised in any way. Those are the, the kind of risks I tend to like. And really, do you describe the entire media profile at ZMC? It all looks like that, which is why you know, thankfully, uh, suffering losses is just not part of our makeup. Doesn't mean we always get it right. That does not mean we always win. Does not mean we always get great returns.
1: We're very, very good at avoiding losses. Creative risk-taking, yes. Financial discipline also encouraged, embraced. But there is this concept of being opportunistic financially and creatively, right, which does take financial risk. And so you see events like, for example, the Supreme Court now striking down a lot of prohibits gambling on sports events. And do you say to yourself, whether it's for ZMC or for Take-Two, this is a huge opportunity. We want to make a bet here.
2: It is a huge opportunity. It remains to be seen if there's an opportunity to, for us to make a bet. It's a game changer. And do I think it'll have an influence on our portfolio both now and in the future? I do. It's hard to know what the expression would be. You know, For example, various kinds of casino gambling are allowed in many states. It doesn't always work. Atlantic City has had a really checkered history with casinos. A number of developers came in and invested a lot and have not done well. So the fact that one thinks of gambling as a really great and profitable business does not mean that every expression of it is. You still have to execute. We're powerfully aware of the things we do not know.
1: Yeah, I should mention the ruling specifically did not mention anything about esports, but it's inevitable that more of the content of sports will be part of the trend line. And remember, you know, skill-based gaming is
2: already legal. In 48 states, skill-based gaming is legal. There was plenty that could already be done, but we're really talking about now is online gambling as opposed to skill-based. What we do is skill-based. You know, we're not in fantasy sports. If you're playing one of our games, you do not win by chance. It's purely Mm skill-based. So in a way, the ruling doesn't entirely influence us. But it will it will absolutely open up the doors. You know, I think the companies that are probably incredibly excited are companies like Zynga, which have you know social casino games, and now they presumably are saying, "Wow, like we can play those with real money in certain jurisdictions."
1: But given how solidified and strong Take Two is today, do you feel like the company's in a position where you, as the chairman, can say, "Let's take some more risk right now and plan for the next few years"?
2: Yes, we have the ability to go out on risk spectrum if we wish. Okay.
1: So putting your investor hat on for a second, ZMC, it is a focused investment portfolio around you know, media and technology, broadly speaking, consumer-related industries. Give me a sense of what your thesis is in deploying capital at this stage of the market cycle. And And I know recently you had a, an acquisition of a company called Dynasty Sports and Entertainment. Talk about what went into that last acquisition and And how's the team doing?
2: We don't feel that we can call cycles. I do think we're aware of market conditions. And we're rigorous in the way we approach valuations. We don't typically subscribe to the view, uh, the conventional wisdom about what a market multiple ought to be. Um, And equally, we don't subscribe to the view of what a leverage multiple ought to be. So we are looking for companies that are off the beaten path, perhaps misunderstood, maybe need help, not always, and where there's an opportunity to invest on favorable terms, where we then can under leverage compared to our peers so as to reduce the risk profile, which is crucial to us, as I mentioned. And then we dig in as operators, uh, since we're operators by background, with the management team to try to help create value. And generally speaking, that works out. And it works out because we've been very fortunate to work with amazing entrepreneurs and we've been pretty good about selecting great opportunities. Not perfect at it, but pretty good. One of the themes that we invest behind is this notion that live events are exploding because as the world becomes more digitally driven, more technologically driven, it becomes more fragmented. And as we find ourselves you know, alone with our devices, we still want to connect with other people and we like to do so at events whether it's a music event or a sporting event. It's not only fun. It's not only a way to socialize. It's also a way we define ourselves. So if you go to a sporting event, you know, how many people stay at the end? If you're there to see a game, why are you leaving early? And the answer is because it's not really about that. You can you find out the outcome, You know any other number of ways. And you can, by the way, get a great seat at home in front of your television <laughs> or on your tablet. It's or a, a phone. social experience, right? You're there with your friends. You're getting a beer. Um, you're wearing the shirt. You're defining yourself by who you admire and who you're shouting for. So we wanted to invest behind the theme of the explosion of attendance at events and interest in events. But we didn't really think the way to do it is to try to buy an event that's sexy and a trophy asset and trades at a high multiple. So we were looking for a business that enables events to be successful. Through intermediaries, we came across Dynasty and its CEO, Cole Rubin. We just thought, wow, what they're doing here is incredible. They're providing great service. They're helping teams and venues increase their ASP, increase the per capita in the seats, and increase their food and beverage and merchandising sales. And they're not asking for anything unreasonable in return. They're asking for an appropriate fee in return. That sounds like a great deal to us. Oh, and they're professionals and they deliver data. Cole and his team have done a phenomenal job building a great business, and we're still learning and getting up to speed and trying to be helpful, but it's very exciting so far.
1: Any other companies in the portfolio that you want to highlight? Oh, I love all my children equally.
2: (laughs) Uh, We uh, invested in a company called IT Renew, which is in the ITAD space. They're responsible for decommissioning and recommissioning um, servers and data-related equipment as... Data continues to explode. The need for servers continues to grow and the need for data destruction and enhanced privacy grows, as well as the need for reconditioned equipment. And IT Renew is a leading company in the space. They're in San Jose, California, terrific team. A relatively new investment for you, right? Yeah, we've we've made a couple lately and we actually have a deal closing in just a few days, we hope. That's great.
1: Getting back to mentorship and uh, reading slash writing, you've mentioned to me and others, That Dale Carnegie's book in 1936, the bestseller, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is the book that has most influenced you in your career, in your life. What was it that was so impactful to you? And is your mentorship philosophy born out of that book? You know, it's easy to overstate the case. First of all, I should say, um,
2: I think it's the greatest self-help book ever written. It's really one of the first, not the first, one of the first business self-help books written. But its title is really against it, because the title implies, like, how to be the most popular boy in the class, right? <laughs> which is sort of overweening and offensive. The book really isn't about that. The book is really um, how to be effective and live a great life. And the answer is, stop thinking about yourself, show a sincere interest in others, which is pretty straightforward. I now saved you, you know, $9.95. But it's, it's a great read. And it talks about salesmanship, because that was a very 1930s thing, but there's a thin line between salesmanship and leadership. Because one thinks, if you've never been in sales, I mean, you and I are salesmen, right? So we know this. But if you've never been in sales, tempting to think of sales as, you know, Aria, I want to get you into a new Buick today, <laughs> <laughs> right? Steak
1: <Staten Island>. coming. <laughs> uh,
2: right. <laughs> I'm going to find a way to get you to buy something you don't need. That's what people sort of on the outside think of as sales. But of course, that's not sales at all. Sales is meeting people's needs. You want to sell someone something, Pick something that you want to sell them and tell them why you want to sell it to them, and you will fail unless you're doing something dishonorable or you're working with, you know, a mark. That's not salesmanship. Salesmanship is finding out what the other person needs, developing a trusted relationship, and then to the extent you can, helping meet their needs. And if you aren't able to do so with the wares that you have to sell, find other ways to be of service to them and build a relationship because life is long and there'll be another opportunity to engage with them. Oh, and by the way, Dale Carnegie says this, so what if there isn't? You still had a really nice interaction. Yeah. You know, life is still better. So I, I was always a friendly guy. So it wasn't like he taught me like, hey, be a friendly guy. That, that was sort of my wiring. But I don't think I was a natural leader. And, you know, I actually picked up the book after I got pretty tough talking to at Fox. I was successful young. I was president of 20th century Fox when I was 32. But you know, I, a few months in my boss's uh, chief of staff wasn't his title, but effectively it was his job pulled me aside as a friend. And he was a friend and said, listen, um, We think you're really smart, but we're not sure you have any leadership skills at all. That's a pretty rough thing to say to someone (laughs) who just got his dream job running a studio. A bazillion flaws, but I'm not a defensive person and I'm very self-critical. And even though it really hurt to hear that, and it scared me too, because I thought, wow, this could be really bad. To be the um, end. Yeah, it really could, right? What it encouraged me to do is I better do something about this. And I was in the airport going on a, a trip, and this is the days before Wi-Fi on planes. Uh, so I was in the bookstore and I stumbled across, literally stumbled across the book and I'd heard the title and I thought, oh, I'll pick it up. And it was not like, oh, I just got this feedback. I'll pick this up. It was, oh, I'll pick this up. And I get on the plane and it was a complete eye opener to me. And I did exactly as I was told, you know, and I highlighted it and I put the principles to work, corny as some of them are, and they work, it worked, and I learned. I don't get high marks for that many things in my life, but I do get pretty high marks for communication, persuasion, salesmanship, and leadership.
1: Yeah, and there is a bridge uh, between leadership and entrepreneurship, right? Leadership almost graduates into being an entrepreneur because then you're really taking risk as part of your leadership. And I want to know whether you always knew that you would have your own company because you had phenomenal positions working for others and leading many people at these great companies and whether it's BMG or Fox, et cetera. But ultimately you formed a company in ZMC or Zelnick at the time. And it reminds me because I was at a event recently where Jeff Bezos said, there are two types of entrepreneurs or leaders even. There are those that are mercenary and those that are missionary. And the mercenaries are out there to really win the buck, maximize profits, maximize value. That is the goal. And the missionaries are ones that are really trying to build something with a mission. And the irony is the missionaries end up probably making more money than the mercenaries because your eyes on the prize and on the vision. So which one are you? That's a bit of a softball. <laughs> and talk about entrepreneurship and running your own company. You've given me a lot of advice over the years on this topic. Well, I mean, it is tempting
2: to just say uh, I'm the good kind, not the bad kind. Look, I'm in a for-profit business. I'm a capitalist. Undoubtedly, I was excited about the economic opportunity of, of building a business in which I had a meaningful equity stake. I was well compensated for running big organizations. By the way, I considered myself a very good employee, and I think I was seen that way. So I was not like a renegade. I was not someone who had difficulty working in big political organizations, and I would have had no trouble doing that for the rest of my life. And when I walked away from working for other people, you know, I walked away from very good income to an exceedingly uncertain situation where I had no income initially, as did you. And we talked about it openly, Mm -hmm. you and I, about the risks related to that. And even though I had a good deal of confidence, I also knew there was an enormous opportunity to fail, as you and I talked about. Yep. And I actually also knew that even if it were successful, it would necessarily be as profitable as what I had done before. So my motivation in co-founding ZMC, what is now ZMC, was definitely a belief that I could do well financially, but I was pursuing something I was passionate about. Missionary is probably an overstatement because we're not curing cancer over there, right? We're investing in media communications, entertainment, technology enterprises. And while we love what we do, you know, it would be hard-pressed to say that we're changing the world for the better much of the time. So I think missionary is an overstatement. I, I think Steve Jobs was much closer to missionary. I mean, he truly didn't care about money and truly did care about his vision. I don't have a powerful, personal, burning mission. I can't honestly say that. But I'm definitely not primarily motivated by money. So I would say it's a little bit of both. I'm in this to do well, because that's what capitalists do. And I'm in this because I'm excited by what we're doing in media and proud of what we're building I don't think I'm in the mold of, and probably for worse, of Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs. I don't think I have that much talent, and I don't think I'm in the mold of those guys. Actually, I look and feel a little bit more like a professional manager. And in a way, you know, we've now built a, an organization with many billions of assets, and we did it incredibly efficiently. We've created an enormous amount of value. I'm very, very proud of that, and I've enjoyed doing it. But it has been done in an exceedingly methodical and conservative way. Uh, there is nothing Elon Musk-like about me or our enterprise. Well,
1: I want to thank you. And I'm really thankful that you are ageless <laughs> so that we can continue to benefit from your maximizing in your four buckets hmm. for the benefit of uh, shareholders and the benefit of your mentees, including myself, and your upcoming readers on uh, for the new book. So I really appreciate you being here with us, Travis. Thanks so much. Appreciate, appreciate it. it.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.